Good morning. It's uh, so good to see everyone this morning. Uh, my name is Hugh, and I <clears throat> serve on the leadership team here at SGC Midland. And I have the wonderful privilege to share the message this morning from the book or the Gospel of John. And so we're going to get right into it uh, after we read the passage. Um, We'll uh, pray at that time. So we're currently preaching through the Gospel of John, and we have worked our way to chapter 7. Last week, Eric covered uh, verses 1 through 24, and uh, this morning, we're going to be covering verses 25 through 52. Uh, before we read the text, I think it would be very beneficial to talk a little bit about the backdrop or the setting for this whole chapter. Um, the setting is the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, or Feast of Boots, as, as it's sometimes called. Uh, it's a week-long Jewish celebration, and it's halfway through the feast Jesus made his way to Jerusalem and uh, was teaching in the temple. <coughs> Excuse me. His teaching was powerful, and authoritative and nothing like they have ever heard. Uh, <clears throat> and the Jews marveled and were astonished by it since, their, uh, <clears throat> since in their minds Jesus had no formal training. It, uh, <clears throat> their point though was not that Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm so sorry. The point was not that Jesus is, uh, demonstrated ignorance. They were, they were kind of having a real problem with, with him, but it wasn't that they're coming against him, but it wasn't that he was demonstrating ignorance. Oh, thank you so much. But that he was not formally trained in one of their schools, right, the rabbinic schools, because, <clears throat> because they could not refute his teaching, they raised questions about its credentials and challenged his authority and legitimate right to teach in the temple. Um, later on in this chapter, his teaching would also astound the temple guards who were sent to arrest him. Despite their opposition and the controversy over um, who he is, Jesus never backed down from his claims to be Christ and being God. Uh, in verses 25 through 36 of our text this morning, we find various responses by the people and the Jewish leadership to Jesus' claims of being Christ the Messiah. The responses range from confusion among some of them, divided conviction among some, and downright contemptuous ridicule or scorn among others. And in verses 37 through 52, this was the last day of the feast, which much urgency, Jesus stood up and shouted out his invitation to all who were thirsty to come for spiritual, eternal, life-giving water. Instead of continuing to seek after things which ultimately do not satisfy the deep longings of his soul. <clears throat> it was not just an invitation for those present at the feast, though, but it is an invitation which resonates down Christ's second coming. 
In these verses, we also see various responses uh, to his invitation and, and, uh, you know, to come and drink. So with that little bit of background, let's go ahead and read the text. <clears throat> so verse 25 says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man is, comes from. And when Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he, ta as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where, I'm, where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him because I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, <clears throat> but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. Uh, they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things among themselves, <clears throat> and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest them. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little while, a little longer, and then I'm going to, to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him. But no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered him, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does your law judge a man without first giving him a hearing <clears throat> and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet comes from Galilee. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage. 
Father, and just reminded uh, in Isaiah 55, you know, the word talks about there that as the rain comes down from heaven and waters the earth, brings forth fruit, causes things to grow, brings forth a harvest. It says, so shall my word that goes forth from my mouth. <clears throat> it will not return void, but it will accomplish the things that I intend for it to accomplish. And so, Lord, that's how we pray this morning. May, this, may the preaching of your word this morning in the passage, Father, may it accomplish the things you want to accomplish in the hearts of your people this morning. Lord, whether it's encouragement, edification, salvation, Lord, we, we just pray, we just lift this up to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the key verse in this chapter seems to be verses 38 and 39. It was on the last day and the greatest day of the feast when Jesus stood up and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being shall flow, flow rivers of living water. These verse, uh, this verse, or these verses really, communicates the overall theme of the passage and aligns perfectly with John's state, uh, purpose statement of the book, which is found in John 20. And we have read that a number of times, where it says there, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the title of the message this morning is pretty simple. For those who genuinely believe in him, Jesus promises complete satisfaction of the deep spiritual needs of the heart, which will overflow to meet spiritual needs of others. Well, there are two main categories of people depicted in this text. On one side of the coin are those who believe in Jesus, having been convinced that he is the Christ, the Messiah, and they plate their faith their trust in him for salvation. On the other side of the coin are those who don't believe in him for whatever reason. <clears throat> they have not placed faith in him for salvation. Although they have heard the same message and have the same information about Jesus. This is true really for any church gathering, isn't it? Unbelief typically displays itself in many ways, some of which are depicted in this text. So we're going to see a number of them this morning. There are two main points to today's message, discussion points, and a bunch of sub-points. Point number one, unbelief resulting in, there's unbelief resulting in confusion among some of them, divided conviction among some, and downright contemptuous ridicule or scorn among others. And then point number two, or discussion point number two, would be the invitation to come and receive living water and the responses which we see. So, point number one. The fact that Jesus was teaching openly and boldly um, 
confidently. <clears throat> and the rulers said and did nothing in response, despite their being publicly humiliated by him, shocked or surprised some of the people to the degree that they wondered whether the leaders had inform information which changed their minds about Jesus and decided that really he's the Christ. We, we know that's not the case, but, uh, but they think well, perhaps this could explain why they, they have not uh, arrested him. So we see this in verse 25 and 26, verses 25 and 26. It says, some of the Jerusalem, people in Jerusalem therefore said, is this, my, this man, is this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is Christ? However, this idea was quickly dispelled. The next verse, verse 27, we see a reason why some of the crowd rejected the possibility that Jesus may be the Messiah. They reasoned that they know where Jesus is from. But, who, but whenever the Christ appears, no one knows where he's from, according to them. <clears throat> the fact is that they did not know the Old Testament as well as they thought. And we can easily make the same mistake today when it comes to our supposed knowledge of the Bible and God's words, God's word. Despite the fact that they seem so confident in their statement about knowing where Jesus was from, they really did not know. They thought it was from Nazareth, where he was raised, and he now lives in Capernaum with his family. <clears throat> and they likely did not know that he was born in Bethlehem as the Old Testament said he would, or they, they probably should have, but they, apparently they didn't. According to John MacArthur, their statement about when the Christ appears, no one knows where he's from, was apparently a popular belief and tradition based on misinterpretation of some Old Testament passages like Malachi 3.1. This tradition held that the Messiah would be unknown until he suddenly appears on the scene to redeem Israel. Interestingly though, look at how Jesus responded. He does not argue with them regarding whether they are right or wrong about the actual physical location where he's from. His response to them in verses 28 and 29 redirects them and confronts and exposes their ignorance about him their continued denial of who he is, and their unbelief in him. So Jesus said, he proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I'm from. That sounds really like a statement of fact, but it was like more a questioning thing. You think you know me or know where I'm from. That's actually the way it should be received and read and received. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So he says to them, you think you know me and where I'm from, but you really don't. I'm not the self-appointed false prophet and pseudo-messiah the leaders accuse me of being. He goes on to say, I have not come on my own initiative, but was sent by God the Father, whom 
they don't know. So Jesus is saying, you don't know this. You don't know the Father. You think you do, but you don't. However, Jesus knows the Father because he's from him, and he sent Jesus. The knowledge which Jesus had of the Father is based on his oneness of essence with the Father. They share the same eternal reference. They're God, right? He's part of, they're part of the triune God. And he proceeds from the Father in that he, was, he has the same mission and purpose as the Father. <clears throat> Basically, Jesus is here reiterating the fact that he is the Christ, the Messiah, who God promised to send in the Old Testament. According to D.A. Carson, and you should have this in your, in your outline, the point that Jesus is making is here. Uh, is this. Uh, yeah. The Jews prided themselves in knowing the one true God. And don't we sometimes do that? <laughs> Unlike the pagans right around them. Certainly, that was their privileged heritage. And they were given the law, they were given the Old Testament. They should actually have known God through it. They especially thought that God had made himself known to them in the law. But the law, <clears throat> but the law, Jesus has already insisted, points to himself. If the Jews do not recognize who Jesus is, it must be that they do not really understand the law, which they think they did, right? They do not really know the God who gave the law. For if they had really known God, guess what? They would not have rejected his son. So question really for us, how about us? We may pride ourselves on knowing the Lord through the scriptures, but do we really know him and have the kind of relationship with him that knowing him implies? The scriptures were given to us for the purpose of knowing him, learning his ways and growing in our relationship with him so that we are becoming more and more like him in character, conduct, mission, Or do we use the scriptures to formulate our own ideas about God and what his plan and purpose is for our lives? Something to think about, isn't it? Well, in the next two verses, we find two diagonally opposing responses to Jesus' statement about uh, being from God and sent by God. <clears throat> These responses bear witness to the division that often takes place when the true gospel is proclaimed. So verse 30 says, so they were seeking to arrest him, or really some translations say to seek, to seize him. You know, the leaders were seeking to arrest him. <laughs> These guys were trying to seize him and, and get rid of him by themselves. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Some of the Jews in the crowd, infuriated by what they considered blasphemy by Jesus, claiming to be God, and the sent one, were seeking to seize him for the purpose of putting him away. These were not the leaders, as I mentioned, whose plan was to arrest him, but this was a spontaneous attempt by some of them in the crowd. 
John does not say how Jesus was able to avoid being taken by them. But he does provide the ultimate reason why they were unsuccessful. They, the divine perspective and reason why no man laid hands on him was because his hour had not yet come. Meaning what? There was a divinely appointed time coming when Jesus would be seized and crucified according to the Father's will to pay the price for our sins, a price which he did not hold because he was guilty of nothing. <clears throat> but he did it because he had you and I in mind and all those would, would be redeemed. But up until that time, nothing could happen to him. There were attempts later, actually, while he was there in the temple. Other people wanted there wanting to seize him again, as well as, of course, the arrest warrant that was out for him. Well, that time when he would be seized would actually not be very long from the events which were, which were occurring during the current feast of tabernacles, which John records for us. Because six months later, at the very next Passover, Jesus would be betrayed, arrested, tried, and sentenced to death on a cross. <clears throat> well, that was one of the responses to Jesus' statement. Some angrily rejected him, wanted to see him. But there was another response. Many in the crowd actually believed in him, verse 31. They apparently arrived at, the, at that conclusion that Jesus is indeed Christ by their rhetorical question which they raised. The question is, when the Christ shall come, will he not perform more signs than those that this man has? Will he? The implied answer actually there is no, which convinced them that this man was indeed the Christ. These people who believed were very likely knowledgeable of the Old Testament scriptures. Um, and the scriptures like Isaiah 29, 18, Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, which spoke of the Messiah performing many miracles. We see this, again, really, um, in Matthew 11, verses 2 through 5, which really provide further proof <coughs> to John the Baptist He's now in prison that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the expected one. So here is what John did. John here is he's in prison. Um, <clears throat> so it says, now when John heard in prison the, the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. But don't think that this group which believed in Jesus did it because they were signed miracle seekers. That's not why they believed. Rather, they believed in him because they believed the prophetic word in the Old Testament. 
that when he comes, he would do all these things. And they saw what was happening. Says, yeah, this, this must be the Christ. <clears throat> well, the Pharisees were not too happy about the fact that much of the conversation was focused on Jesus. To add insult or injury, there were some who were suggesting that he might be the Messiah, and some were believing in him. So they didn't like that at all. So they joined with the chief priests, <clears throat> and the, the chief priests were uh, um, this plural, right? These were former high priests that make up this group. <clears throat> and they sent officers to arrest him. Now these officers were temple guards, um, and they, um, they were Levites who were responsible for maintaining order in the temple grounds. As we see later in the text, the temple guards could not carry out their assignment and failed to arrest him. We'll get to that here after a little while. <clears throat> so how did Jesus respond to this development? Well, he continued to boldly speak the truth about himself. So he says in verses 33 and 34, I will be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Pretty tough statement. Once again, the leaders and others misunderstood what Jesus was saying. They could not imagine that there is anywhere Jesus could go where they could not find him if they choose to seek him out. They even mockingly suggested that perhaps he will take his message to those dispersed among the Gentiles, probably Gentile proselytes as well as other Gentiles, and Jews as well that were scattered. <clears throat> but guess what? Without even realizing that what they were saying, their Christian, although meant to mock him, was actually prophetic of the spreading of the gospel among Jews and Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire and beyond after Jesus' ascension and descending of the promised Spirit, Holy Spirit. But what Jesus was saying is this. At the appointed time when they're talking about, you know, I'm going and you, you know, uh, you can't come where I'm going and so forth. Jesus is saying is this, at the appointed time, I will be crucified, resurrected, going back to the Father from whom I was sent. But you, those who don't believe in me, will continue to seek me through their works righteousness, law keeping, that will not work. And they will not be able to go where he's going because of their unbelief. But there are those who will join him where he's going. So this was not some blanket statement that, no, you know, he's just talking to those who don't believe, right? Uh, <clears throat> those, uh, so there are those who will join him where he's going. It is those who believe in him. So later on, Jesus said this to his disciples in John 14, the first four verses. 
Okay, what he said. I, I think it may be in your outline. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prayer a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And he goes on and says, and you know the way to where I'm going. Meaning, the way, of course, is what? Belief in him. Right? It's faith in him. And the fact is, there is no other way. That's why these unbelievers, the you know, unbelieving Jews, cannot go where he's going. Unless they believe, of course. Right? Which some will. <laughs> Some of these very people who are saying, you know, later on they will believe in him. <clears throat> well, let's now look at point number two, because this really leads right into point number two. And this is the invitation to those who are thirsty to come and receive living water. We, we see this in verses 37 and 38. It says there on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, some passages, some translations say, his innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus did not just randomly shout these words out of the blue, <laughs> so to speak. The Feast of Tabernacles was the perfect setting for Jesus' statement. So let's talk a little bit more about the significance of this feast because I think it's going to help us to better grasp the full meaning of his statement and its implication for those who place their faith and trust in him. So the Feast of Tabernacles one was one of the three great Jewish feasts. Now there are many more feasts, but the three great ones, so to speak, uh, were the Feast of Tabernacles. The other one was Passover, or it's called also the Feast of Un Unleavened Breads, Unle Unleavened Bread. And the third one was Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Ingathering. There, of course, were other feasts, such as the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement and many others. The Feast of Booths was a time of thanksgiving for the harvest and a reminder of God's provision in the desert during their forefathers' wanderings. It also signified that God dwells with his people. It lasted for seven days, and there was also apparently an eighth day for some closing ceremonies and so forth. A major feature of the feast was the booths, of course. It's the Feast of Booths, and that was a major feature. There's shelters, really, is what they were, which the people prepared and lived in outdoors during the seven days. But another feature of the feast was an important water um, ceremony, which took place on each of the seven days. Apparently, this ceremony was not 
prescribed in the Old Testament, but it had become a significant tra uh, tradition for centuries, <coughs> excuse me, before Jesus' time. On each day during the feast, a golden vessel was filled with water from the pool of Siloam. That's where the blind man actually got his, received his sight in John, uh, later on in, in, in John 9. And they carried it in a procession by the high priest, led by the whole high priest, to the temple. As they drew water from the pool, the people would recite Isaiah 12.3, which says, Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. At the water gate, three blasts were sounded on the shofar to mark the joyous occasion. At the temple, the priests marched around the altar as the, uh, the, the choir sang the Hallel, which is Psalm 113 through 118. The water was then poured out as an offering to God. On the seventh day, the priests would actually encircle the altar seven times in succession, then pour out the water on the altar. Uh, D.A. Carson says this, his commentary uh, about this passage. It says, These ceremonies of the Feast of Tabernacles were related in Jewish thought both to the Lord's provision of water in the desert and to the Lord's pouring out of the Spirit in the last days. Pouring out of the water at the feast refers symbolically to the Messianic age in which a stream from the sacred rock <coughs> would flow over the whole earth. And who is that sacred rock? Jesus Christ himself, right? <clears throat> He's the sacred rock. Uh, Paul speaks about, about this in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, where he says, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. This is now the desert wanderings, right? They drank from the same spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. You see, this event in the wilderness also serves us as it speaks allegorically of Jesus Christ who would come and offer true spiritual drink which would not provide temporary quenching of one's thirst like the water which flowed from the rock in the wilderness, but it would, but it would uh, permanently and eternally quench one's thirst. Well, it was on the last day, the great day of the feast, against the backdrop of the water ceremony, that Jesus stood up and boldly gave his invitation. If anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. <clears throat> you know, ironically, the one whom the water ceremony and the Feast of Tabernacles pointed to was standing right there in the midst. And most of them did not receive him. But of course, we know many did. But that invitation is extended to anyone who is thirsty, it says here, whoever, if anyone is thirsty. <clears throat> so 
So two questions should come to mind. Who does anyone refer to? And second, who are the thirsty? Well, let's talk about anyone. The audience gathered at the Feast of Tabernacles were not only Jews, but consisted of Gentile proselytes, people from all over the Roman Empire, who would converge on Jerusalem to celebrate. It was really similar, you know, it's one of the great feasts. Remember, Pentecost was the other Passover. And so it's similarly at Pentecost, you remember, thousands of people <laughs> attended that feast. Um, same thing would happen here. A lot of people from all over would come and attend the feast. <clears throat> so anyone here likely referred to all different nationalities, ethnicities, <laughs> can't even pronounce that word, on all different age groups. There'd be children, teenagers, young folks, older folks, educated folks, rich folks, poor folks, family members. It's interesting also because when you think about it, you know, none of his brothers, none of Jesus' brothers believed in him at this point in time. You realize that? Um, they were urging him to go up to the feast, kind of in a mockingly kind of way, really. Um, and they attended, but they probably heard these words, right, as well. That he says, come, who are thirsty. <clears throat> but um, at that time, none of them would, but they would later on, wouldn't they? <clears throat> also, the invitation was not given to just those who were present at the feast but it extends throughout the church age until Jesus returns for his second coming. Well, how about the thirsty? Who are they? One might think that the thirsty are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Matthew 5, 6 says, you know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they, sh they shall be satisfied. <clears throat> but we should ask ourselves, where does this thirst come from? Think of the Samaritan woman who Jesus met at the well. She was hungering and thirsting. Was she hungering and thirsting after righteousness? It did not seem like it, at least at the time, right? She was thirsty for something, though, for, for water for sure, plus many other things in order to find some level of satisfaction in things other than God. You see... We were the same way before we came to Christ. And sometimes we do the same things after <laughs> we come to Christ as well. Uh, Jeremiah 2 verse 13 says this, For my people have committed two evils. They, for, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jesus used the Samaritan woman's physical thirst for water to re redirect her focus to draw, to draw her to the true source of living water, which is himself. Her eyes were opened by the Lord's teaching, and she drank of the living water, <clears throat> which he offered to her and was satisfied. But it did not stop with her. 
it overflowed to those in her community, many of whom drank and were satisfied as well. His teaching following the feeding of the multitude was meant for this same purpose. But guess what? Some drank of the living water, but many did not. The sharing of the gospel really has the same purpose and same, does the same thing. We share the gospel with people. Some believe, some may not believe. But we can't lose hope because as you know, even when Jesus, as I said, gave that invitation, all these people, a bunch of them did not believe. Well, a few months later, I bet many of those same ones believed or years later for that matter. Um, So who are the thirsty then? I would propose that the thirsty are those who the Lord makes thirsty through the sharing of the gospel with them. And those are the ones who will drink of the living water which he offers. Remember earlier in John 6.44, Jesus says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. In verse 38 of, the, of our text, those who drank are synonymous with those who believe in him through his teaching. As Pastor Billy and Harris have said many times, believing in Jesus is not, is not simply believing a set of facts about Jesus. In fact, one can actually believe that he is Christ the Messiah and yet not believe in him the way the scripture defined and described belief. Yeah, he's the Messiah. I believe that. We could read the Bible today and, and believe, think that, you know, said, yeah, I agree that he is. But what, what does it mean to believe? <clears throat> it means to be fully persuaded, not just in one's mind, but in one's heart. In other words, it's not giving mere credence to facts or truth. To believe in Christ means that that person who believes has been won over by the truth concerning Christ. He's fully convinced by the truth and as a consequence, transfers all loyalty to Christ from self. It implies surrender to Christ and conduct that is inspired by such surrender. This, of course, signifies that this person has placed their full confidence, trust in Christ. And it implies total reliance or dependence upon Christ. A true believer, a true disciple, is willing to forsake all and follow Jesus. Peter's, two or so weeks away, serve as an example of true belief in Christ. When many of his disciples decided not to follow Jesus after he spoke about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, Jesus asked the twelve whether they would do the same. How did Peter answer? Lord, you, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of Israel, the Holy One of God, sorry. Well, in verse 38, Jesus says, 
that streams of living water will flow from within one who believes in him. Believing in Jesus brings salvation, whereby we are connected to the true source of living water. It is an unending source which never diminishes and continues for eternity. It really speaks of eternal life. Not only does it not diminish, but it's totally satisfying where nothing else in this life brings true satisfaction which is not temporary. Yes, there may be some things which satisfy us for a little while, but we soon find ourselves pursuing more of it or something else because the satisfaction which we thought we had diminishes or even ceases to be satisfying. The fact is, earthly things were never meant to bring total satisfaction. This kind of brings back memories of the lyrics to a song by the Rolling Stones way back in the day, <laughs> uh, which in a way serves as a proxy for the general populace. Some of you, I was never really a Rolling Stones fan, so don't, don't <laughs> Anyway, it goes something like this. I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try. It ends with, I can't get no satisfaction, no satisfaction, no satisfaction, no satisfaction. And that's so true. Not in temporal things, for sure, right? And even those seem to run out, right? We kind of get tired and trying to find it in something else. So let's think about this. What are some indicators of true satisfaction and contentment in Christ? I'll just list a few. I don't want to get too much off track here, but one is peace. But it's not as the world gives. Jesus says he would give them his peace. He would leave his peace, but not as the world gives. Joy, which nothing or no one can take away from us. John 16, 22. How about this? Knowing we have an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and, not, and will not fade away and it's reserved in heaven for us. First Peter, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, 4. And about this, how about this one? Knowing we belong to a family in which we are loved by the Father with the same love which, which he loves, Jesus Christ. And there are a number of others that we could mention. But back to verse 38. Here Jesus says that streams of living water will flow from within one who believes in him. And he ties this statement back to the Old Testament scriptures. He says, as the scripture says. He did, this to identify, he did not identify the specific Old Testament passages he had in mind, but several would like to come to mind for those who are familiar with the Old Testament. Isaiah 55 certainly would certainly be one of them. There are those who are thirsty or invited to what? To come to the waters <clears throat> and drink, of course. Another passage would be Isaiah 12.3, which is recited during the water ceremony at the feast. It says, therefore, you will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation. 
Another is God's miraculous provision of water for the Israelites in their wilderness wanderings. That would certainly come to mind. In fact, the water ritual during the feast was meant to commemorate this event, and it anticipated the blessings of this messianic age to come. If you recall, Moses struck the rock, and water, an abundant supply of water, gushed out, and all drank from it. And not just the people drank, their cattle, their livestock, they all drank. <clears throat> well, in John 7:39, the author is quick to point out that the water metaphor which Jesus uses in um, verses 37 and 38, and what the Old Testament scriptures were really anticipating was the coming of the Holy Spirit in fullness. So he says, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Holy Spirit has always existed, so it's not like <laughs> he came at Pentecost or something, you know. He's always existed. Uh, he's part of the triune God, which existed in eternity past. But with Christ's crucifixion, burial, resurrection and ascension to the Father, the new covenant was inaugurated. The Holy Spirit would be essential in this new covenant in that he would be sent by the Father and the Son to continue the work which Jesus began. The Holy Spirit plays a very essential role in the salvation of anyone, everyone that gets saved, the you know, maturing of that person, the work and the ministry which that person is called to. It is the Holy Spirit through whom eternal life is imparted to those who believe. And the Spirit would empower all believers to bring that living water of salvation to others. This does not mean that the Holy Spirit was not present or active when Jesus said these words or prior to that. You know, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon certain individuals to empower them for ministry. But that, that was not the case for everyone. The Holy Spirit didn't come everyone back then. Under the new covenant, the Holy Spirit would be in and with every believer, working in them to grow in grace and in knowledge for the Lord Jesus Christ and to empower them for the work of the ministry, among other things. In the coming weeks, as we get farther into John, we're going to learn more and more about the role ministry and work of the Holy Spirit as we get into chapters like, you know, 14, 15, 16, so forth. Well, the event which John is referring to uh, when the Holy Spirit would be poured out in fullness is Pentecost. Pentecost, <clears throat> also called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Ingathering in the Old Testament, was not something which was inaugurated in the upper room with the disciples and a few others. And we may probably falsely think that, you know. <clears throat> it was a Jewish feast which was first celebrated 50 days after the first Passover. Remember they had the first Passover in Egypt, right? During the Exodus, the people arrived at Mount Sinai 50 days after the first Passover. 
the old covenant was inaugurated at Mount Sinai with the giving of the law. It was God's provision to draw the people, his chosen people, close to him and make them a peculiar people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. At the first Pentecost, God's Spirit descended on Mount Sinai and spoke to the people through Moses. Well, fast forward to the day of Pentecost recorded in, recorded in Acts 2. This occurred 50 days after the Passover when Jesus was crucified. At this Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended not on a mountain, but on God's people who were inaugurated into the new covenant by Christ's shed blood. In the new covenant, God's people are drawn closer to God because the Holy Spirit would be with and indwell every believer, writing God's laws upon their hearts, empowering them to walk in a manner worthy of Christ and to carry on the work and ministry which Jesus began. And listen to what first, uh, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. We find this description of God's people and, and, and see how similar it is to what God said about the people of Israel when back in, at Mount Sinai. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you are not a people, but, you are, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. These are essentially the same words which God spoke concerning people of Israel at the inauguration of the Old Covenant at Mount Sinai. So John wanted us to know that the coming of the Holy Spirit was what Jesus was talking about, <laughs> right? So, what are some of the responses? And this is how we we'll, we'll kind of bring this to a close. Some of the responses to Jesus' invitation. Well, in verses 40 through, 50, through 52, we find various responses. Um, basically, the responses can be condensed into four categories. In the first category are those who were convinced that he's the prophet. Whom, Jesus, whom Moses wrote about in Deuteronomy, <clears throat> and others were convinced that he's the Christ. We see this in verses 40 and 41a. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this truly is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. Today, we would like to view these as the same person who God had promised to send. But some Jews back then thought the promised prophet and the Messiah are actually two different people. Nevertheless, this category of people, they did believe, you know, and hopefully with time they learn more and more and mature in the Lord, but they did believe. Um, the second category are those who remained in their unbelief. They were not convinced that Jesus was the Christ and were skeptical. As far as they were concerned, Jesus did not fit their understanding of scriptures concerning where 
he would be born and raised. We see this in verses 41a and through 44. So some says, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Was not the scripture, has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. We discussed kind of a similar situation and argument earlier when we looked at verses 27 through 30. So we're just gonna, we're gonna move on to the next category, uh, which is this third category are respond, responses uh, uh, by the temple guards who were sent to arrest Jesus. They're sent by the, the leaders. They heard Jesus' teaching and invitation and they confessed no one ever spoke the way this man does. Furthermore, they saw the response of the crowd, which was divided. Some believed, some did not. And they were deeply torn by both the message and the people's response. So did they, so did they not perform the task assigned to them? But we know, of course, from earlier, that the real reason they could not arrest him is because his hour had not yet come, right? Um, as commendable though as their response was, they still did not believe in Jesus at this point anyway. Well, the Jewish leadership was not too happy about the temple guards not following the orders of the religious authorities. So they gave them a severely critical, scornful rebuke, which we see in verses 47 through 49. So as the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Well, the fourth category of responses come from Nicodemus. <clears throat> we see this in verses 50 through 52. Nicodemus took, took exception well, let's, we'll go and read it. Nevertheless, it says, <clears throat> Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does your law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search the scriptures that no prophet arises from Galilee. See, Nicodemus took exception to the Pharisees' claim that all the religious leaders had rejected Jesus. He was the one earlier who came to Jesus secretly by night. And he was regarded as one of the preeminent teachers in all of Israel, if not the preeminent teacher. He was likely not a disciple at this point in time. Um, but he would later become one we think, as evidenced by the fact that he and Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, another disciple of Jesus, got permission from Pilate to take Jesus' body after he was crucified and prepared it for burial. <clears throat> well, for his, his response to this Sanhedrin, they turned on him too. <laughs> And they gave him a good tongue lashing as well. Um, so let's close. Um, <clears throat> sure, sure. 
We're going to close with a song as Josh is coming. I'll go ahead and um, give some closing thoughts here. In our, in our text today, we see Jesus continuing to boldly proclaim Jesus as the Messiah, the one whom the Old Testament prof, promised would come and effect spiritual deliverance for the people. We also see various varied responses to his claim, but it all boiled down to either believing in him or not believing in him. We also see Jesus extending an invitation to those who are thirsty to come and to drink of the living water which he offers and be satisfied. But again, we see varied, varied responses which essentially boils down to the same thing, either belief in him or not, no belief in him. But here's the thing. The invitation applies to all kinds of people, as I mentioned, right? Uh, <clears throat> but here's the key. The invitation was not just given to those who were present at the feast, but it extends throughout the church age until Jesus returns. In other words, it's a standing invitation which is pertinent today. Right? The invitation can be responded to right there where you are. Or if you would like to talk with one of the leaders, or you could talk to your neighbor right next to you, for that matter, about it, you're welcome to. Um, we have a prayer team that will be coming up as Josh leads us in this, uh, this final song. And uh, if you'd like prayer for anything, for needs, any needs, or even to talk about talk with someone about salvation, you're welcome to come and do that as well. So Josh, if you'd go ahead and close us in the song.